Hey, good to see you. <laughs> nice to be here today. Seem to get that to come on there for a second. Uh, if you open your Bibles to Hebrews, Hebrews uh, chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, the text was read for us this morning. This, uh, this text in Hebrews 11 is one of those that uh, we think that we have it all together because we're so accustomed to taking texts like this and just seeing it as one whole thing. Well, by faith, and we list, we see all the list of different individuals that live by faith, and there is a tendency to look at that and go by fairly rapidly and just think in terms of, well, these were great men. Uh, we call it the hall of, hall of Faith, and these are great men. Uh, actually, these are ordinary people just like you and me. Uh, they were sinners. They made mistakes. Abel offered a sacrifice because he was a sinner. Uh, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord because he was a sinner. Uh, we could go through the life of Abraham and find repeated weaknesses in, in this man's life. And, and therefore, sometimes we go through this pretty rapidly. And my, I will admit to you, my first thought was, well, maybe I'll just give one lesson on how we can overcome apostasy because of, look at, look at these men of faith. But as I studied Hebrews 11 more diligently, I discovered that really in this text, he does not intend for us to go over this rapidly. He intends for us to see each of these sections very, very carefully because there's relationships between the individuals that he speaks of and what they went through in their time of faith. And there's some really terrific lessons that are given to us here. You will notice in this first part that what we have here in verses 4 through 7, which is all we're going to talk about this morning, is just verses 4 through 7, uh, you will notice in this particular section that he interrupts the message to about Abel and then the message about Enoch, and then he interrupts that to talk about without faith it's impossible to please him, and then he goes on to Noah. So there is an interesting connection between all of them. In fact, when we read about first Abel and Enoch together, we're to see a certain connection there. And when we read about uh, without faith, it's impossible to please him. We're to see a certain connection then that comes down to Noah and what he did. That's what we want to uncover this morning and, and, dis and discover and not just say, oh, this is just a great text on faith and look at how these guys are so faithful. We want to see something better than that that the Hebrew writer is trying to get across. In fact, his intent, if you cover and go back to chapter 10, verse 38, what he says there is, but my righteous one will live by faith. And then he is going on to talk about how God is rewarding those who are living by faith. That's really the emphasis of the chapter. Not so much these guys did great things, but these guys were men and women who were people of faith. They lived by faith, and because they could see the unseen because they recognized that which they could not uh, materialize at the moment, 
they were able to come to the reward. And it comes in many different ways that we want to identify that. This particular section talks about the faith of the pre-flood patriarchs. Specifically, as you have seen, Abel and then Enoch and then Noah and the comment then in between. Uh, The writer is not randomly picking out different ones. He begins with, and I want you to see a relationship here. He begins with Abel. Abel was killed because of his faith. Well, not everybody is killed because of their faith, but he says here, Abel was killed because of his faith. Sometimes faith requires us to submit even to death because of faith. However, Enoch was under the threat of death and God delivers him from death. So God, in spite of death, is the conqueror of death, is stronger than death and can give the faithful then life. And then Noah here, Noah's faith enables him to save his family and at the same time condemn the world because they refused to live by faith. So uh, you see the picture then of Abel dying from his faith, Enoch delivered from his faith uh, with his faith, and Noah being able to save the world and save his family uh, from judgment and, and be delivered at the same time. Uh, look then a little bit of a connection here. Abel and Enoch and Noah illustrate for us these, the, the results of faith. Even though Abel suffers death, Enoch gives us the better picture of a resurrection. Enoch shows us that God can conquer death. And we need to then see how that we all are going to identify with with each of these individuals. Uh, I can identify with Abel and Enoch because we are all going to die in spite of being given promises. The promises are not going to be given in our lifetime unless the Lord would return. But we will triumph over death. And that's the picture that you give. You are given here. Faith indicates you may die because of it. Faith also indicates God supersedes death. Faith also indicates that you can be delivered from judgment and God is a great deliverer. In each of those situations, we can identify with these people as we'll be able to identify with all the individuals that God gives in this particular uh, chapter. Let's, Let's stop then and just take a moment to talk about Abel for a moment. The thing that strikes me about Abel is he is the first. Jesus said he's the first in a long line of martyrs. Uh, look at the words he gives in John 8 verse 44 concerning uh, the Jews and their rejection of him. He says, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. A lot of times we don't realize that when Cain killed Abel, Satan was the one who killed Abel. This this is Satan's cause here. 
I always thought it was interesting to see uh, in Genesis 3.15, God making the statement there that I will put enmity between you, the serpent, you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. The fact that Satan has offspring, the woman has offspring. Obviously, the offspring of the woman are the faithful. We see this we see that in Micah, we see that in Revelation 12, the offspring of the woman of the faithful. Well, who's the offspring of the serpent? People like Cain. And it, it is, is too obvious to see these first two individuals born on the earth, and, uh, and Cain looks up and sees Abel after the sacrifices and says, hmm, offspring of the woman, I must kill the offspring of the woman. This is a battle and I must kill him. And that battle goes on through the entire Bible. You can constantly see the offspring of the serpent in, in opposite with the offspring of the woman. Jacob and Esau, uh, Ishmael uh, and, and Isaac. Over and again, you're constantly seeing this battle take place. And the battle is still on. We are to be the offspring of the woman, but we battle the offspring of the serpent. When you look at Abel, you put yourself in the same situation. What's happening with Abel? Satan, the serpent, is the one who is killing him. Ultimately, who's our battle with? Our battle is with the serpent. To me, that helps me handle the situation that I'm in, the situation you're in, handle the world, handle being able to endure and live by faith because our battle is not just with myself. The battle is with what the serpent is doing. He's trying to destroy. Now I, I have a better purpose. Battle on. I can go forth and be able to fight this battle. Think about the story that's given here. Two brothers both worshiping, both bringing sacrifices, one's accepted and the other is not. We are not given a specific answer in Genesis 4 as to why Cain was rejected. Hebrews says he didn't offer or live by faith. He offered a better sacrifice by faith. 1 John 3 and verse 12 says Satan's works were evil. Was it sacrifice evil? Well, it was, regardless of whether or not it was an obedience to God, regardless of whether or not it was the right sacrifice, because he lived an evil life and his works were evil. Very possibly, I think most probably, but others disagree, that what he, that what he offered was actually not in response to what God said. In verse 7 of, of Genesis 4, uh, the Lord says that the works that you are doing are evil. He actually tells him, if you will overcome, you will be able to be accepted as well. And he tells him clearly, you, you, the sin, sin is like, a, like a, a lion trying to devour you, and you must overcome it. Either way, whether it's the sacrifice or his life, he doesn't offer by faith, and because he doesn't offer by faith, he is rejected. Notice especially these words. Through his faith, he still speaks. 
I think there's two things you notice there. If Abel still speaks by his faith, Abel still lives, number one. But most importantly, Abel still continues to testify that those who live by faith will be accepted. Our works will be accepted if we live by faith like Abel did. He still testifies that. If you put yourself in the position of the Hebrew Christians, those Hebrew Christians are not enduring. They're not living by faith. They're not trusting that God is going to bring them to the reward. And he says, Abel's still speaking to you. If Abel can get there, you can get there. If God accepted Abel's works, God will accept your works. He will accept your sacrifice. There is something better, and God is not a death is not a barrier to the promises of God. If you're a Christian and you're like the Hebrews and you may be facing death, or you need to understand that God conquers all of that, and there is no reason to continue to worry. Contrast this with Enoch. And I would suggest we often miss the story or importance of Enoch. How many times have you read Genesis 5? It's a really fun chapter. Adam lived so long, 130 years, had some kids, then he lived a whole bunch more years, and he died. And Seth did the same, and it just goes right on through. And he keeps saying, these patriarchs, they lived so many years, they had a kid or some kids, and then they died. And you keep seeing the emphasis of death. Our problem often is, and, and I've done this many times, where you're drilling your children and say, well, who are the two people in the Bible who did not see death? And we go, okay, it was Enoch and it was Elijah, the two E guys. Uh, Enoch and Elijah. And then we just go on. So what? Well, the so what is, in the midst of all of this, we see hope in the midst of death. God had told Adam and Eve that when the day you eat of this, you should surely die. This was going to be passed on from generation to generation. You are going to surely die. Genesis 5 keeps saying, and they died, and they died, and they died. And then he gets to the seventh generation, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not. And God is giving us a glimpse. There is still hope. There is hope for those who will walk with God. And that was, would be his key. Then in Genesis 5, you will be delivered from that. I think interesting when he, the scripture says he was taken. And in the, in the Greek there, that can be translated a number of different ways. Taken or being, or chain, being changed or the um, uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament actually says that he was translated, and therefore he bypasses death. God indicating that he has the power then over death. Look at how this is summarized, though. This is where I think this really comes down. Look how this is summarized in, 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 uh, in, chapters, in verse 6 of chapter 11. And without faith... He's connecting that. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Notice first off, he says two things there in verse 6. Those who would draw near to God. Okay, that's not all you do. Those who would draw near to God must 
believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's not enough to draw near to God. There's a trust in his existence first, and there's a trust in his faithfulness to reward those who, uh, who, he, who walk according to his, his will and have trust in him. There is a trust in that faithfulness. I'd like you to consider just in comparison, James chapter 1 and verse 5, 6, and 7 there. When he talks about asking for wisdom, here's, here is what James says. He says, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So ask yourself the question, what would it mean to ask in faith? Somebody says, well, it, it means that you're, you're going to actually uh, believe that he's going to answer the prayer. Yeah, okay. Well, what does it mean that you believe he's going to answer the prayer? What, what process do you have to go through in order to trust that happen? And then ask yourself this question. When you pray and ask for something, do you believe that he is going to answer those prayers? Sometimes you pray because you know you should. Sometimes you pray because you know you should ask. And he told you to ask. But at the same time, deep back in your mind, you're thinking, is he really going to hear this prayer? Is he really going to respond to this prayer? And so in James here, James actually says, you need to not doubt about this. To ask in faith means you are not going to doubt. And if you doubt... What are you? You're a double-minded man and you're unstable in all your ways. Now transfer that here to Hebrews 11. If we doubt whether or not he's going to reward us, are we living by faith? I've heard Christians all my life say things like this, well, I sure hope he saves me. Well, maybe I'll make it. Well, I hope I get there, and he's not using the hope of Hebrews 11.1. 1. Just maybe possibly, if I get really lucky, those are not what the Hebrew writer is saying here. That is not appropriate for a person who is seeking God. He tells us here, you must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. The point then of the text is that we are lacking endurance, and here is the key to overcoming falling away. We lack endurance because we do not have a good foundation of faith. Now, faith doesn't mean that I can just think, well, I can be saved and I know God's going to save me regardless of how I live my life in any way. Obviously, that's not what he's saying. He's warned throughout Hebrews, we cannot live as the wilderness people lived. We cannot constantly question God, live for idols, live for our own ways, things like this. But he is a rewarder of who? 
He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. If we constantly go through our lives always thinking, well, maybe God's going to save me. And I'm not sure if He's going to save me. Just, I mean, just like these Hebrew Christians. The reason that they are falling back is that they have not endured on the count of they not believing that He's really going to reward them. They really are failing because of that. We need to pay attention to what the writer is telling us here very clearly. Without faith, it's impossible. What do you mean faith? Faith in the sense that I believe He exists and that I know He is going to reward if I will diligently seek Him. I've got to have that belief in me because otherwise I'm not going to act. This is, I, I, I truly believe one of the biggest reasons I've seen people fall away over their life is because they just get, it just gets too much for them. Or they get too involved with the world and it eventually just carries their mind away. You have to accept that he's going to give the reward. I, I would suggest that in, if we just put this in the vernacular of the day, he would be saying, look, stop doubting about whether or not God's going to get you there or God is going to save you. Pull on your big boy pants, get up, and get, start seeking and working for the Lord. He is going to save you. He promised he would. This is based on his promises. And Abel wasn't perfect, and Noah wasn't perfect, and you can read about Noah after the flood, and he wasn't perfect. And you can read about Abraham and he wasn't perfect. But they did not give up on their hope of things they could not see. So stop doubting. Stop waffling. And do as the Lord has asked us to do. Pay attention to this phrase when he says, seek him. He talks about seeking him. And some of your older versions will say, diligently seek him. And the newer versions just say, seek him. But in the Greek, the idea is a seeking that is diligent and is giving our all for him. You remember um, King Josiah? King Josiah is always impressive. He became king at eight years old. And the scripture says when he was 16 years old, he began to seek the Lord. Now, what's that mean? By age 22, he was turning Israel upside down to change the temple, change the idolatry, and refurbish the whole land spiritually. 22. Because he started seeking the Lord when he was 16. Everything else became secondary to him. And he is seeking the Lord. This is the idea of what life should be. By the time we're teenagers, we should have spent enough time with the things of the past and begin seeking the Lord. I'm not suggesting that's, oh, that's the moment you're baptized. That's not even the moment Josiah got it. I'm just saying that's when you start seeking the Lord. That's when you become mature enough to say, it's time for my search to, to go forward and me really learn and find out who God is. Now, Noah becomes an illustration of God being a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I think Noah, for all of us, I may relate to him 
better than I do Enoch or, or Abel. Uh, simply because, obviously, Noah, though probably persecuted, does not fall into that same category of death and nor fall into the category of just be taken up into heaven, which, uh, uh, let's face it, we don't relate to those two very well because we don't see Christians in our country at least dying for his cause. But Noah responded, the scripture says there, Noah responded because he was warned concerning events as yet unseen. As far as we know, it hadn't rained before the flood. Talks about that in Genesis 2. Um, Scientists will tell us that from what we can see geologically, Probably the earth up to the time of the flood was a warm greenhouse effect all over the world, uh, that, that this is what would cause the long ages uh, and, and uh, the various effects that which you have prior to the flood. Now, if you'd never seen it rain, and you lived a thousand miles from the nearest ocean, and some guy comes along and says, I'm building this this boat that is the size, this barge that is the size of a football field and a half, 450 feet long and over 75 feet wide and very, very short and squatty, 45 feet high with three decks. And I'm building that because there is going to be this enormous flood that is going to cover the whole world and everything is going to die except the people in the ark and the animals in, the, in, this, in this boat. How easy would it be for you to believe that? Nothing is said that Noah did a bunch of miracles prove what he said. Enoch was talking about it before him. He was warning against the judgment. Nothing is said about any of that. How much would you believe? He, Noah, is the prophet, of course, of the time. God is speaking directly to him, and he is letting the people know this is what's going to happen. For 120 years, he builds an ark and warns the people because he is warned of things that are not yet seen. And he is able then to prepare for it. But our, I think, miss on this particular text is that when we think of the flood, we think of judgment. When God is giving this, he's thinking of deliverance. We mentioned this morning in class. Everyone is under judgment. We should always be thinking of deliverance. And we can't deliver ourselves. He is the only hope for deliverance. If we are going to have that only hope, we are going to have to live as He would have us to live. And therefore, Noah is saved by grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah is saved by faith. This text says so, that he was saved by faith. And Noah was saved because chapter 6 of Genesis and verse 20 tells us that he obeyed all the things that God had said to do concerning the building of the ark. He's saved then by his faithfulness. And what he's doing here is he is saving not only himself but his whole family and could have saved the world if they they had have repented. What Noah sees is three things here. He sees God's promise. 
He believes in His promise. He sees God's power, believes in His power, and he sees God's faithfulness. He believes that God will fulfill what He said He would do. The ark is going to float. Those three things he is able to see. Now please, just imagine for a moment the confidence that Noah has in this. He has a confidence in things not seen. He is able to see the unimaginable. None of us can see what's ahead as far as a new heavens and new earth and what that will be like. We cannot see what's ahead as far as what a heavenly city will be and what a better country will be as Abraham refers to it. We can't see any of those things, but we do recognize that because of everything God has done, we can have confidence in that which is not seen. And that's us. We're just like Noah, preparing for a day in which we have a hope that cannot be seen by anybody else, and we will not be disappointed. The key then to all of this is faith has the absolute assurity. The absolute assurance, as chapter 11, verse 1 says, it has the absolute assurance that this is going to happen. There isn't any question about it. Am I living knowing that there is no question about it? Am I living knowing there will be judgment otherwise, but deliverance if I follow this? And therefore, the picture here is, is God your rewarder? Is God giving you what is going to give you what you really believe is going to happen? Is there any doubt in your mind? Do you have that kind of faith? It's a tragedy that Christians have grown up often being taught doubting that God is going to do what he said he was going to do. And I haven't found any place in the New or Old Testament where God appreciates anyone doubting whether or not he's going to do what he said he would do. And I know where that comes from, too. It comes from the fact that we oftentimes doubt because we're not always living perfectly and that we fail. But the whole point of living by faith is that God is going to overcome that. He's overcome our, over, he overcomes our death spiritually. He overcomes our death physically. And he specifically says... Without that trust in his reliableness to fulfill what he promised and reward, it is impossible to please him. And you say, well, I I, I think I need a little help with that. Exactly. One of the primary reasons that Hebrew writer has constantly gone back to us spending time in his word, not casually reading, but really getting into his word and seeing how he thinks and seeing what he promises is going to be inevitably something that builds and builds and builds your absolute confidence that God is going to do what he promised. 
So we're going to sing a song just in a minute. If there's some way that we can help you get to that point, maybe you already understand what you ought to do and you need to uh, understand the need to be immersed in water to have your sins forgiven. Whatever it is, if we can help you talk to us afterwards, we're glad to do so in order to help you have that same assurance because without that faith, it's impossible to please him. If we can help you anywhere, please step forward while together we stand and while we sing.